This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Maybe, maybe we're sitting at the office and maybe the most Canadian story ever pops up in our inbox over at the spectator here. I'm sure the people at CHML and the news department had this happen as well. A story pops up about a beaver rescue. What, what could be more Canadian than someone rescuing a beaver. If, as Ted Michaels was reading for you in the newswheel just a moment ago, an overweight chubby beaver got stuck between two prongs, two bars of a fence. And it was a Hamilton animal control officer who had to come in right into the rescue and save our national symbol from sure death. Well, we could not let this pass without bringing on the hero of the afternoon. That animal control officer, Sarah Momborquette, joins us now. Sarah, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Scott? I am wonderful. Listen, did you know when you checked in for work today that you, by the end of your shift, when you headed for home, you were going to become a Canadian legend? Well, I wouldn't go so far as legend, Scott, uh, but certainly we have uh, an entire team of amazing heroes that help a ton of wildlife every day in this great city. Well, you know what? You may not say legend, but if you go on social media, let me assure you, you're a legend. This story has gone all over the country. It's gone all over the United States because what could be more Canadian than having to rescue a beaver in the springtime? Absolutely. He's on our nickel. We have a dessert named after him. That's true. That's true. How, okay, so, so tell me how this works, because uh, I don't know how your job operates. Are you like a police officer who just drives around and you get calls to go to certain things, or are you in the office when you find out this and have to go racing out? How do you find out that this beaver is stuck? Well, this great city of ours has a fantastic um, municipal team that deals with animal services uh, that include uh, sick, injured, or orphaned wildlife. So when the public does see any type of wildlife that they may be concerned is sick, injured, maybe it's a baby this time of year, um, then they call city services and they're going to get a hold of our dispatch, which is 24 hours a day. And we're going to respond if they believe that there is something wrong with this animal. Um, And the caller in this case did everything right, everything we want the public to do when they encounter wildlife in distress. So it worked out perfectly. Was this, okay, so there's a fence. Was the fence close to a property or how how did this person stumble upon this beaver? Well, I think they noticed something moving around in a fence and fences typically don't move around. Uh, So they did notice it was a large creature stuck in the fence, did what they were supposed to do, which was stay back and away from the animal, took down some visual observations, called our dispatcher, reported clearly this creature is exhausted and it cannot get out of this fence. So as soon as our dispatcher hears that, she's, she or he is going to know, you know what, we need to get an animal services officer out there. And I did, and my first thoughts were, oh dear. <laughs> well, did, did, did you get, when you got the call initially, was it for a beaver or just for an animal? It was, for, it was for an animal, and obviously we never want to make assumptions before we get there. We want to get there, assess the situation, and then see what we can do to fix it. But do we have, I've never seen a beaver around here. Do we have a lot of beavers that live in this area? <laughs> well, there's, 
there was a large number of beaver population in the Coots area. In this situation, uh, it was actually Lower Stony Creek. Um, so we do have some marshy and pond areas where we will find beavers. We've got a very healthy population of beavers in the city. Um, so it wasn't too surprising. I mean, we don't come across beavers every single day, especially in these positions. Uh, but it worked out fantastically for him. So, for well, And so what did you see when you got there then? Well, it was pretty obvious that the beaver was clearly stuck at the hips. Um, It was a very narrow gap, and clearly he decided to come out, not the way he came in. Um, So I could see that he had been struggling. He was exhausted. Uh, He was just way too tired, and there was no way out of the situation unless you give him a little bit of a helping hand, which uh, we decided to, we had to do that for this Canadian dude. Are beavers by nature aggressive? Like when you approach them, now obviously you say he he or she was exhausted, but I mean, are beavers, would you normally be very careful approaching one like this because they could bite you or what do you do? Any, any amount of wildlife, uh, it doesn't matter what species it is, it's wild and that's why we call it wild. So they can get agitated. Um, that's why it's so very important that the public don't, you know, as much as our hearts go out to them and we want to help them, it's best to make sure you call the city services first because we want the people who know how to safely handle them so that way the public is safe and the animal is safe. This guy in particular was exhausted and he, you know, he, I think he was a little bit of appreciative. He was hmm. more than happy to take the help. But have you ever dealt with a beaver before? And the reason I ask that is because it, it, I assume every animal is slightly different in how you approach them, how you handle them. Had you ever dealt with a beaver? Absolutely. Every, everyone is different. I must say this was my very first beaver. So I was very, very happy. I had another fantastic animal services officer who uh, came for backup and assisted with me, uh, who was very well schooled on beavers. I was going to say, like, do you have, this may sound like a stupid question, but do you have protocols for different animals because you've been trained in each of them? Or do you kind of make it up on the fly almost in some of these cases? Obviously, as an animal services officer, you have to be ready to think on your toes. But we have a great deal of training. We have a great team that is extremely skilled, highly experienced. So if you do encounter a situation that maybe you haven't dealt with before, you know you've got a great team that you're going to give a call to and someone's going to shoot right over and help you out. So it worked out perfectly in this case. And again, uh, I don't know how often you've had to release an animal of any kind from a fence, but is there a protocol for what you do in this case? Or again, is it, okay, we've got an animal that's stuck, let's come up with a solution. Because uh, uh, Explain what you did, and, and is that the usual thing you would do? Well, absolutely. You're going to take the species into consideration. You're going to take the level of injury or illness um, that you're assessing at the time into consideration. Certainly right now in the city, we do have to have heightened awareness with any of our rabies vector animals. So if you're dealing with a raccoon, a skunk, a bat, a fox, um, you're certainly going to have a little bit different of protocols uh, and you're definitely going to want to make sure that uh, none of the public has had any contact whatsoever with it um, and making sure that you're going to deal with that specific species as to what's going to be most appropriate for them. But how do you get it out? How did you get it out? (laughs) In this situation, um, because the hips were just so stuck um, and clearly it had been raining, uh, he was just jammed in there. So just leaning on experience, uh, make sure that we get those hips, you know, something that he can slide out. And what's better than dish soap? So we're going to, you know, make it all nice and easier for him. And then we just need to give him literally a helping hand up. So that way he was level to shimmy himself through those bars. And of course, 
he was showing some signs of lameness. Uh, we were concerned, just as you would be if you were stuck in a fence that long. <laughs> uh, you may not be good to go and just run off. Uh, therefore, uh, we have some great friends um, in Hobbitsy who are authorized Ministry of Natural Resource Rehabilitators. Uh, so those are the only people that uh, can keep wildlife in their home. Uh, we want to make sure that wildlife stays wild and that they're able to be released back in their natural habitat, which uh, we are confident is going to be the case for this uh, Canadian guy. Is dish soap, though, part of your um, tool belt that you have in the truck already, or do you have to go to the nearby house and ask for a bunch of dish soap? It completely depends. You may have some in your bag. Uh, it's it's off, often quite interesting to see uh, the things that uh, an animal services officer will keep in their duty bag. Uh, but if you don't have some handy, I mean, this city is full of fantastic residents that in a pinch, you can absolutely ask them, hey, do you happen to have some dish soap? Do you happen to have this? And uh, it's it's amazing to see our residents are more than happy to help out if you don't have it in your duty bag. But Sarah, did you have an audience for this? Because I know that on the press release that came out, there were some photos. Now, I don't know if you took those or if someone watching this took those, but oh, were there I, people standing around watching you? No, absolutely not. So we did have a, you know, the resident uh, where I did get them, she did watch from a distance, um, which was so respectful for myself and which was so amazing for the beaver um, because certainly our presence can stress them out greatly. Um, so everything in this particular incident worked out perfectly. Uh, in this case, the resident was super helpful and was more than happy that uh, we got some help for the beaver. It, uh, before I let you go, did you have any other calls today that match up to releasing a beaver from a fence? <laughs> I can't say I did, um, but tomorrow's another day. And as we speak, another officer may be doing something similar <laughs> right now. Who knows? What is the, what, honestly, what is the strangest thing you've ever had to do as an animal control officer? I'm going to say that this one probably tops the list so far, but tomorrow's another day. What's the strangest one you've heard someone else, though, come back to the office and say, you will not believe what I had to do today? Oh, my goodness. You know what? We probably would be here for hours and write a book. (laughs) So what I could suggest is the City of Hamilton Animal Services does have a fantastic Facebook page. People are more than welcome to join that page. And often we post some of the greatest stories that our officers encounter every day. So that's a great way to see all the interesting cases. Well, look, you can go there. People can go there for sure. But as I said, I don't know if you even checked it today, but Twitter went bananas for this, of course, because this really is. I mean, the only way this could have been more Canadian is if the beaver was, I don't know, eating Tim Hortons and listening to Ann Murray or something, because this was everyone down in the States who was on Twitter was just talking about this is, yeah, this is what we do in Canada. We just find stuck beavers and release them into the habitat, into their natural habitat. Absolutely. I've been asked why I use dish soap and not maple syrup. And? <laughs> well, the dish soap just seems to work a little <laughs> bit better. <laughs> yeah, a little less sticky. You got it. Sarah Momborquette, uh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for uh, releasing the beaver. It's, it's, it was so Canadian of you. It was, it, I'm sure it said sorry, too, as it walked away. Oh, I'm sure he, I'm sure he did. <laughs> Sarah, thanks, thanks for doing so this. Thanks so much, Scott. That is, uh, as I say, Animal Control Officer Sarah Momborquette. Um, now, I did want to point out that part of the thing that helped propel this story along, it's not just that a beaver was released. The press release that was sent out from the city today was rather epic. Obviously, they decided they were going to have a little fun with this. Nobody was hurt. The animal survived. 
It's a happy ending. Literally, we'll get to that in a second. But everything about this was a good story. So they decided they were going to have some fun with it. So here's a quote from the manager of animal services. This is included in the press release. Conservation efforts have led to a healthy beaver population. And in honor of Canada 150, Hamil- animal Sir- Ham- Hamilton Animal Services is thrilled to give this beaver a happy ending. We believe that no beaver should be left behind. Um, yes, it was a... Um, it was it was a Canadian story. You can't, you can't get much more Canadian than rescuing a beaver. And again, just go on if you if you don't believe me, go on Twitter if you if you have Twitter, and just type in beaver, and in all likelihood you will receive you will get to all kinds of tweets about what happened today. For the most part, for the most part. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. If you're a movie fan, you've probably over the course of your life watched movies like The Crying Game, like The Sixth Sense, movies that have shocking twists right before the end that you never saw coming. You were going down one path and bam, all of a sudden something hits you and you are completely taken by surprise as something else comes out of the blue and changes the direction that film just went. Well, if the LRT story that has been going on now for years was a movie, that twist ending just happened. At about four o'clock today, so about two hours, give or take, before Council was to meet to decide pretty much whether this project was going to go forward or begin a slow withering death on the vine or accelerate the slow withering death on the vine. The city sent out two press release, well, two letters as far as a press release, one from Mayor Fred Eisenberger, one from Transportation Minister Stephen Del Duca. And both letters, they were written to each other, but they're both included in this, caught, I think, most people off guard when the province essentially says, we will do everything possible to find a way within the budget to make the LRT now not stop at the Queenston traffic circle, as in the middle of nowhere. We will make it continue on to Eastgate, which was something that has been discussed as possibly the salvation of this project. Well, now at the, literally at the 11th hour, maybe the 11th hour and 59 minutes on the doomsday clock, this was way along. It has showed up and it appears that because of that, council is going to vote today to push this thing forward. They are still going on. They're still talking, but it appears that this, is going to happen because as soon as these letters came out, Councillor Terry Whitehead, who had talked about this previously on this station, who has been one of the leading critics and skeptics of the LRT plan, said if it went all the way to Eastgate, he would vote to push this thing forward. If you love the idea of LRT, if you're a big supporter, this has got to be a great day for you. If you still hate the LRT, this is probably going to be very disappointing to you, though at least if you can find something positive in it, if you disagree, at least the LRT goes somewhere. It goes from Eastgate to McMaster potentially now, as opposed to, as I say, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But here's the big twist in all this thing. I don't believe 
that this happens, that this, these letters show up today, that the province becomes engaged enough today to extend this, if some of the city councilors don't push this thing to the wall and make everybody involved, including the province, very nervous, meaning the LRT advocates who have been arguing for this and vilifying some of the skeptics, Terry Whitehead, Donna Skelly, may now have to say to them, hey, thanks, you actually helped convince the government to make this thing better than it was going to be. Agree? Disagree? Well, let me bring in a man who knows as much about this discussion as anyone in the city because he has dealt with it for longer, I think, probably than anyone in the city. That would be the man who is on this station every morning from 9 till 12, uh, the the voice of Hamilton, Ontario, Bill Kelly. Bill, how are you tonight? Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm... I'm I'm shocked, quite honestly. I never thought this would show up at, as as dramatically as it did. And just before we get onto that, though, against all odds, with what I just said coming into this, against all odds, is there a chance that at the end of this, if you're a supporter of the LRT, that Terry Whitehead becomes the hero of the story? Well, let me put it this way. I'm watching the coverage right now on Cable 14. And uh, if there's a price to pay for progress, Scott, the price we're paying right now is listening to the longest speeches <laughs> I have ever heard from people that usually don't say two words at any city council meeting. Everybody's going on and on. and on. Actually, at the sleep clinic, o- clinic over on Fridge Street, apparently he's going to use a tape of this now as a cure for, for insomnia. So uh, that's, that's, I guess, something we're just going to have to put up with. But at the end of the day, yeah, this is going to pass. There are a few people speaking against this right now. Councillor Partridge, Councillor Brenda Johnson, uh, Doug Conley from Stony Creek, and I'm not sure where Maria Pearson is going on there, but just about everybody else says, well, begrudgingly, we're, you know, I was opposed to this, but now, including Chad Collins and, and Terry Whitehead, they're saying, yeah, we're going to support this, at least the motion to send it forward anyway. Yeah, I said just before you came on, you wouldn't have heard it yet because you were listening to this, but it was, I think, uh, maybe an ill-advised move by the mayor at the beginning of the speeches here to say, hey, we don't have any delegation, so I'm going to let you talk as long as you would like tonight. That's the last time he's ever going to say that to his council. Yeah, well, he may live to regret that. Uh, I know I am. <laughs> but <laughs> to this... your point, to your point, uh, I, I, this is going to get spun so many different ways. Uh, you know, that, well, if it weren't for me, if it weren't for the counselors that, that you know, held their feet to the fire, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, the province wants to see this thing happen. The mayor wants to see this happen. And I got the sense after last week's meeting, uh, Scott, that that all of a sudden the phone calls back and forth between Queen's Park and City Hall, specifically the mayor's office, uh, were ramped up. Uh, you know, I had McMeekin, I had Ted McMeekin on the program yesterday, uh, and he pretty much intimated at that time that something was up. And I, it, it reminded me, Scott, of a discussion I had with McMeekin about two years ago. Uh, where we seem to be stalled about this. Where's the funding? Where's the funding? Remember Del Duca came into town a couple of times, didn't bring any check? And I said to Ted, is this thing dead? Are you guys going to fund this thing? What's going on? He says, well, stay tuned. There could be something coming up. Well, the next day, they announced that the premier was coming to town with the money. So Ted's, Ted's a pretty good bellwether as to what's going on. And I really got a sense from him yesterday morning uh, when he was on the show that, uh, that there, was the, there was something going on here. And that the money was going to be forthcoming and they were going to extend the route. They were going to do what they needed to do to make this thing work. But for dramatic emphasis, let me tell you, I was at the Spectator building today. I was about to leave the newsroom to go home, and this thing shows up on my desk, this press release with the two letters. I walk in to get a feel, because you know what? Andrew Dreschel is, is great at this stuff. And I walked into Andrew and I said, hey, what do you think? And he says, about what? He had actually almost been turning off his computer to go to city council. 
and he hadn't even seen it yet because that's how late this arrived. If you're looking for a dramatic flourish, sending it out as people basically are showing up at City Hall to make to cast this vote, that's how you do it. Oh, sure. The, the, the sense for drama here was, uh, was e- easily seen here. I mean, this, this was done for effect. And, uh, and maybe, maybe one of the reasons why, so it would give some of the naysayers very little, if no time at all, to respond to this and react. Yeah, good point. You know, for those that are saying, well, we don't know about this, we don't know about that, and we're still hearing about that from some of the councillors that are speaking against this right now. Uh, Councillor Partridge still seems to think the billion dollars can be used for something else. I don't know how many times uh, McBeacon has to tell her that it's not, but be that as it may. But it's, they're just going over the same talking points again. But, but if you look at this case that's been built here, you know, the economic development case, the billion dollars, as Council Marula keeps reminding us time and time again, this is really an infrastructure project. Eighty percent of the money that's being allotted for this program is for what's going on under the roads. Uh, the only, it's not just a rail line. It's, it's, a, it's replacing all the infrastructure now, apparently, from McMaster University all the way to Eastgate Square. That's a pretty big chunk of change. Uh, you look at that, and then the fact that, yeah, we'll extend it, and yeah, we'll find the money for it. How can you say no to it? I think that's the attitude a lot of the councillors are taking right now. Well, it seems as though to me also that the provincial government, which I really believe, and we talked about this on the show yesterday, I don't believe with an election coming up and her poll numbers in the pits, I don't believe Kathleen Wynne wanted to take a billion dollars away from Hamilton. That's not a way you win votes. And so they wanted to make this happen, but I really believe they had to find a way to allow a few a couple maybe even, of the naysayers to somehow save face. And this may be enough to have allowed them to say, look, as you just alluded to, Bill, hey, look, if I hadn't done this, this doesn't happen. Therefore, some people who were against it can flip and say, but I got something for you, and then you're saving face and it looks good on you. Well, sure, and and you might include Chad Collins in that. And Chad's been an opponent of this uh, right from the get-go. I mean, he represents the area with the finish line, so to speak. If if we're going to go from west to east, uh, that section uh, that that goes all the way over to Eastgate is right smack dab in the middle of his ward. And and one of his his points of opposition to the whole debate here, Scott, has been look at drive along Queenston Road there. There, that that's already done. The economic uplift is already done. There's nothing else going to happen there. There's no benefit at all to his his businesses there to his residents, and and that's what he's hearing from them. So I, I disagree with that, but I see where he's coming from. So, but at the same time, he can say, well, look, at least it's going to be for the, the sake of the greater good of the city. It's going to go now to Eastgate Square. It's going to get funded. It's still not going to cost us anything. Uh, and we can move forward on the process. But everybody who is, is and I don't, I don't want to use the term flip-flopping, but everybody out here who is modifying their vote, let me put it that way, yep. is saying so guardedly, like, well, okay, we'll move this forward, but this is not a total commitment. And, and they're right, it's not. No, you know? but, but it becomes, and as a few of them have said tonight, it becomes very difficult to derail it after this if it passes. Well, there's going to have to be a, a, a game-changer for it to be derailed if something were to come up. You know, if, uh, if there's a change in government at Queen's Park and, and a government says, a new government says, oh, by the way, you guys, we're not going to pay for this anymore. And we went through that, Scott. In the early 90s, when the NDP government got elected here, they pulled the funding for the, for the expressway project, for the downhill, the Red Hill part of it, said, we're not building it. We, we disagree with it. We're not building it. We, whoa, whoa, there's a previous commu- We don't buy that. It's not happening. So it, there, there's, 
there's a precedent for that sort of thing when there's a change of government. Uh, so you you have to look at this with guarded optimism at this stage, and and I think that's why there's still some some nervous feet here. You know, it's funny you raise that because that has been poo pooed an awful lot by a lot of people who say, no, 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 they've already spent fifty million or forty million or whatever it is. They're not going to the new government is not going to cancel it. I, I remain unconvinced that a government that comes in is not going to look at the books and say, we are so far in the hole that a lot of things are going to be canceled, including possibly the LRT. I, I, do you rule that out entirely? No, anything is possible in politics. And, and people changing their minds, people changing policies. Uh, I, I just alluded to the expressway project. I mean, for people that have, can go back a little bit into the history of the city of Toronto, there was supposed to be a Spadina expressway built. Uh, that was going to go right down into the heart of the city. Now, you know, there's going to be the Vaughan Valley Parkway on one side and the, and the Spadina Expressway. They stopped it halfway through the construction. And, and now it's the Allen Expressway, and it stops right at Lawrence Road, which is, which is not very strategic. But that's where the money ran out. That's where the government said, now we're not doing that anymore. So it, it happens, and, and you've got to be very cautious about this. And, and I, th- I think we need to do that going forward. And, and maybe that's why some of these people are still a little bit nervous about giving their wholehearted support to this. Well, there's one other part to this, too, that I think remains a little challenging, and that is that from the letters that I've read now three or four times, each of them, I've probably still missed something in them. But the government did not, the province did not promise additional money. They said, we're going to get all the way now to Eastgate within the original budget. Is that going to work? Or at the end of this, are we going to get to the point where we say, well, we're no, we're going to need a little extra money to make this happen. Do you think it can be done with the original billion dollars? I'd be surprised. I, I think there's going to have to be a top-up at some point. Uh, we did that with the stadium when the province stepped in at the 11th hour. You know, they, they sweetened the pot to, to get the city council on side. Uh, they threw a few extra million dollars, a few extra million, I think it was tens of millions of dollars. Uh, that may have to happen in this situation, too. Because when they say, well, we'll try to find efficiencies within the, the existing envelope, yeah, well, like, by doing what? Uh, that, that's a little freaky, you know, and you have to wonder about that. Is, does that mean they're going to start to cut corners? then that takes some of the shine off the project, doesn't it? Well, and costs always, always go up. When was the last time equipment and labor costs and everything else went down five, six, seven years from now? Well, sure. There's, there's always that possibility as well. So it may not even be this government, I mean, because you may not even find that there's going to be some, some concerns about finances and maybe till three, four, five years down the road. Well, there's a provincial election next year, and that could change the dynamic considerably. But to your point... From earlier, even if there is a change of government, even if uh, the wind government is not reelected, whether it's Patrick Brown or Andrew Horvath, I mean, who knows what happens in provincial elections? You know, the only predictable thing that we know about elections now is that they're unpredictable. Yeah. But don't, for one minute, think that that you know they're they're bound to continue those commitments. Things will change, and as you say, the province is in a tough financial situation right now. They can, they can change policy at the drop of a hat, and. Uh, from external pressures, uh, from, from internal, what's going on here. And the other thing that, that may actually muddy the waters a little bit here is the very fact that there's a provincial election coming up. You're going to have people knocking on your door, coming to the city. They're going to promise you the sun, the moon, and the stars to try to get elected. And do you, do you take all their promises at face value? That would be a bit of a, a gamble, wouldn't you think? Well, and there's one other thing that I think we always have to be conscious of in Hamilton. When was the last time Hamilton voted for a conservative MPP? Well, and if we sh- and if we shut in ninety five when Mike Harris was elected, I mean there was a blue sweep across here. Uh, there were a number of conservatives elected, and his reelection, um, 
I, there were some changes. I think Ed Doyle left. I think Brad Clark took his place as a conservative. Uh, and there were a couple of other changes as well. So it, it hasn't happened for a long time. And if no, and if we, if the, if this is a liberal plan and when the provincial election comes up, Hamilton has nothing blue across its landscape and the provincial, and let's say the conservatives win and they're looking now for projects that be able to cut to try and save a few bucks, that looks like a place where you can cut them. It's a real possibility, which by the way, is one of the other anomalies of, of what's going on right now. If you look at the dynamic here, you've got a liberal government. Uh, there are five seats here in the Hamilton area. There's only one liberal sitting. That's Ted McBeacon. And, you know, there is, on the periphery, of course, you know, you've got uh, Hope over on the other side there, Tim Hudak's old writing, but the rest of it is all NDP. And, and that really runs contrary to the political strategy that's often employed. Uh, you know, they, they're going to look at this and say, well, do we have a chance of winning any of those seats back? And if the answer is no, they figure, well, how come we're investing in it? Yet here we are with a billion dollars. So, you know, with that old idea about don't kick a gift horse in the mouth or look at that, that really, I think, is, is underscored now here because we probably didn't expect this to happen. I don't think anybody expected this to happen. And you can't let it slip through your fingers at this stage. I, I, and I don't think it's going to. I think, I think council with, you know, the 11th hour scenario staring at them, have come to their senses and said, okay, let's at least work this down the system and see what happens. Well, Matthew Van Dongen and Andrew Dreschel have both tweeted out in the last couple of minutes that it's going to pass 10-5 tonight, so it would be uh, not even close. But, okay, so when this happens, and let's assume they're correct, when this happens and it passes this evening, does this end the fractious arguing debate? Does everyone just get on with their life then and say, okay, that's over? Because this has been, like the stadium, like Red Hill, like a lot of things, a very divisive issue in the city, or are the people now who were against it even matter because some of the people that they were hoping were going to stand up for them and defeat this have bailed? Yeah, it's, it's not going away. It, it's, it's still going to be there, and, and there are signposts along the way. Now, some of the people that are opposed to this call those exit ramps, but the reality is, is there are funding announcements from time to time. They're going to have to, first of all, there's going to have to be an agreement with whoever's going to build this thing in Metrolinx, and the city's going to have to sign up on that. Uh, that's coming up, I guess, a year from now. So there are there are more controversial elements to this, Scott. I can remember back in in you know the late nineties and early part of this uh, century when I was on city council. You know, we had pretty much decided to move forward on on the expressway construction, but there were still moments and votes that we had to have about funding this portion, that portion, this contract, etc., that could have stalled the program to the point where you know it. it I don't know if it would have canceled it. But that's there, and that's always going to be there. I mean, you, you never just say, okay, we're just going to coast to the finish line here, because we're a long way from the finish line. And I, I'm, I'm not even sure if he's established where the finish line is. Well, that's, yeah. As of tonight, I guess it's Eastgate Square. Well, for now. For now. Yeah. Now, let, let me go to one more point then. I'll take another step down that path, because you now have at least a couple, Chad Collins and Terry Whitehead, and maybe... Uh, as I say, my eye has only been sort of halfway on the set. I, I can't hear anything in the studio here, obviously. I don't know if anyone else is changing their vote from where they were or their position. Well, as some of them had not really declared. Arlene Vanderbeek in Dundas was uh, was not one who was being vocal about how she stood on this. Yeah, the, the, in, I think a lot of people figure that she was opposed to this and seemed to be leaning that way, but she just said that, you know, notwithstanding her concerns about this thing, that she's going to support the motion tonight. So that's that's another vote there that maybe they weren't counting on and probably didn't have uh, last week that they have now. So do those people, do, do Councillor Whitehead and Councillor Collins, do they 
they may now have some newish fans in some corners, but are they the bad guy for those who were opposed because they didn't stand right until the end and oppose this against all odds? Well, let me put it this way. We'll find out next year, won't we? At the municipal election. Fair enough. Let me ask, okay, let me flip that around then. There are people like, and you've had him on here many times, Keenan Loomis from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Ryan McGrill, who you've had on your show many mm-hmm. times, uh, Joey Coleman, others who have been very active, activists towards the LRT, who have vilified Terry Whitehead on social media and Donna Skelly and other people. Now that it looks like Councillor Whitehead is going to flip, do they owe him an apology. Do you expect them to come forward and say, way to go, Councillor Whitehead, you did great for us? Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for that to happen, Uh, nor do I think it probably should. I mean, these are elected officials, and these guys, well, I was going to say they should have thick skins. A lot of them don't, but it goes with the territory. And, and, you know, for instance, you're going to get a pat on the back, and uh, it starts tonight, by the way, with, you know, there, there'll be a, a lot of Volterra tonight, because these guys are going to get sore muscles from patting themselves on the back for the long speeches tonight. <laughs> but, but, you know, tomorrow's another day, and they're going to decide on another issue, and the same people that are replied to them tonight will probably curse them tomorrow because they don't agree with that. So, you know, that, that changes almost on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis with elected officials. So I, I don't think you're going to see a great big love in here. I think you're going to see a, a huge... Uh, exhale at this stage from the LRT uh, pr- proponents and say, well, God, we got through that hurdle. But uh, I think there's a realization that there's a long way to go here. And, and councillors, uh, just as as we've seen, you know, some of the people at Metrolink flip-flop, councillors have a propensity to do that from time to time, too, depending on which way the wind is blowing. So, you know, this is this is not over, and I don't, I don't think you're going to see uh, uh, any long-lasting, you know, glad-handing about this sort of thing right now. They're going to move on and start to other business. And uh, once they see some numbers in some of the other projects that are coming up here, too, I think you'll see all of a sudden a shift of gears. I've got 20 seconds left. One more thing. Sure. Do you think that this kind of issue, this kind of project, this debate, is this going to drive people to come out and vote in the municipal election, which has traditionally been getting lower and lower and lower? Or is the fact that it's now done going to make people less inclined to vote? Are are people going to be mad to come out and vote, or are they going to be just staying at home? If the election was next week, I'd say, yeah, it'll have an impact. But, you know, Scott, I went through the stadium debate, and, and you and I talked about that numerous times as that was unfolding, and, and you know, the farcical nature of that uh, for, with just about everybody involved. And, and a lot of us thought, well, boy, this is going to have an impact on the next election. It didn't. Uh, you know, there was, there was a ch- basic minimal changes, really, yep. and, and a lot of them were kind of brought on by the councillors themselves. But I thought there was going to be outrage. We certainly heard it. Um, you know, well, we heard it, shows. but we didn't. Yeah, we didn't see but the it, results. It didn't manifest itself in a, in a change in, in the people that are there. So, uh, in as much as you know, you like to see that that's going to happen, and you think that that voter outrage and that voter connectivity with a major issue is going to continue. Uh, Probably not. I mean, no. A lot of people are going to get on with their lives, and you know, it, it, tomorrow. This is going to be front-page news. The day after that, they're going to be talking about the Jays' losing streak. Bill Kelly, you can hear him 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm sure maybe you might talk about this for a couple seconds. I'm not it sure. It might come up. It might come up. Bill Kelly, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scotty. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. If you were listening last night to the show or the night before, I was talking, some might say complaining, about me having to stay up late to try to install a panel, a bracket, to hang my flat screen TV on the wall because I am the least handy person on the planet. And this was a huge 
challenge for me because I'm horrible at this stuff. And when it actually made it and was straight and then it stayed on the wall, it was a wondrous moment for me. I mean, I was, I was stunned with joy that I could actually mount a television on the wall only with one more hole than needed to be drilled. I only, I, there's now one extra hole in the wall, but that's okay because I wanted my TV up there. So why am I mentioning it again? Because a new study, a global study from Accenture Digital Consumer has found some shocking numbers about television. Apparently, I have mounted my TV on the wall just in time for it to be obsolete. People choosing to watch programming on television is plummeting. In the last year, In 2016, 52% of people liked watching their entertainment on a TV screen. In 2017, when the same survey was done, the number was down to 23%. Half of TV watchers have bailed on television sets and prefer to watch on other things. Well, joining me to talk about this, a man who is, you know him if you listen to this station regularly, is an expert on all things technological. His name is Adam Oldfield. He's on here with Bill Kelly every Friday with Tech Talk. He's also the president of FPM Marketing here in town. Uh, Adam joins me. Adam, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And by the way, can I answer that question about the uh, uh, the beer? I'll let you. I'll let you answer it with Luke off the air, so you don't give okay. it away. Because I bet you, I, I don't want to say I bet you've had some of it, but you might have. <laughs> it's, oh, I know the answer. So I, I was just thinking, well, do we get a winner yet? Because you know, I know this answer. So if anybody has any questions, please, I'll follow up. So, so, so ahead, after yes. so after tech, we can talk about hops and barley, and and, and you can <laughs> fill in as an expert there too. Uh, Excellent people. Watching stuff on TV is way, way down. Adam, uh, maybe, I, I don't understand. Why is this happening? Well, I think, you know what, I, I've spoke with this with Bill Kelly many times on Tech Talk. And you know what, a lot of it is sort of uh, expected. We've seen that this is definitely a decline. It's been declining for years. I mean, not by large margins, and it's decreasing by, by bigger numbers, as you just indicated. And that goes for fact. For let's Let's go over other things that have declined. We're in an evolution, a technology evolution. And what's one of the biggest things that's dropping right now is landlines. We've seen landlines drop. We've seen cable subscriptions drop. And, and part of this is because they're able to connect directly with uh, a, an Android box or an Apple TV. And now the subscription benefit is that they get the opportunity to pick exactly what programming they want to watch. So if you want to watch specifically a sports channel, your favorite team, or you're looking for the drama, the comedy, I mean, we are right now all diverse in our own rights and reasons. And the days of where we would watch a show and hope that the, the broadcasters would be able to get the right choices for the masses is going to be completely gone. I mean, with all due respect, Scott, you probably like programming different than I like programming um, or music or otherwise. So this does not surprise me. In fact, uh, I'm, ex- I'm actually, the only thing I'm not surprised at is just how long it's taken for the viewership to drop. So, you know, using the example you just said where you mounted your television, hold on. You actually probably got a new television and you made the right choice. And I'll tell you another reason is that all your devices, Android, uh, Apple, or otherwise, they're all going to be able to easily connect and stream under multiple devices. So you'll be able to get one account, Netflix, uh, Amazon, whatever that streaming account is, and you'll be able to link those directly between multiple display units. This has been coming for the last four or five years. 
So it doesn't surprise me in the least that the numbers have dropped. But what does surprise me about this, and I agree with you wholeheartedly about the choices and about people dumping cable and choosing whatever they want to watch, is that this survey seems to say not only are people dumping cable, which we've known about for a while, they're saying people are dumping the television set, the television screen that they prefer to watch their entertainment on a computer screen, on a laptop, on a smartphone. And that's the part that I really don't understand because ultimately I, I have watched things on a smartphone before and within about 10 minutes I've got a headache because generally it's so small and it's uncomfortable to hold the phone in place all the time. It seems to me that if you're going to watch the same stuff, why would you not like to watch it on a comfortable big TV screen? Or is that just an old-fashioned concept? Well, first of all, we're talking about numbers. And again, going with the example we just described, yes, you're going to have your individual television. You're going to have all the... But we're missing a very key point, which we talked about in general. First of all, your smartphone has multiple uses. We, as a nation, as a citizen, I mean, Canadians, by the way, are the most technologically advanced out of all the countries that are on the market. And, and let me tell you why that's the case. First of all, we enjoy our technology. We enjoy it so much, we can't, we can't separate from it. So the reasons why these declines of using large screens are going to be declining sitting in the room with your, you you got the kitchen table, you got your hungry man TV dinner, and you're going to sit and watch TV as a family. Those days are gone. I mean, those kind of took over from sitting at the kitchen dinner and having a nice little warm discussion of how the day went. Now we're sitting there going, I can't be away from my Facebook. I can't be away from my Snapchat. I can't be away from any of my other connections where people can be able to link with me. So yes, people are feeling that disconnect if we don't have the ability to know what's going on. And it's quite annoying when you think about it, Scott, you're going to sit in the living room, look at a television, whatever the programming is, Netflix or otherwise streaming, and someone then uh, messages you on Facebook or Snapchat, you've got to stop, pull your eyes away, and you can now pick up the phone. That's quite annoying. So it does make sense that people would rather look at their iPad, their tablet, their smartphone, watch their programming, look at who's messaging them, so they don't feel like they're not being distracted, and they can be able to pull directly into that moment to say, oh, look, there's a pup dog licking a kitty cat's ears. Oh, I better uh, put a little like on that. So we're seeing this where we want to multitask on a whole new level. We almost can't be disconnected from wanting to be able to be in, in touch with all of our friends while we're watching our entertainment programming. Sorry, I'm still stuck on the fact that Swanson and their TV dinners was the cause of the downfall of society, but you're, you're probably not wrong. But no, let's go to that point. Let's go to the point you just said, though, and I think it's a very valid point, and that is that we have a very difficult time today disconnecting from any of our devices. And I don't know that that's the entire population, but it's certainly the younger population. And that younger, when I say younger, that number is going up and up and up. I would probably argue almost anyone under what would you say, 50, 55, probably fall into the category, maybe higher, who really have a hard time disconnecting? Yeah, it would be younger than that. Under the age of 35 right now is is the common hard challenge disconnect. The ages of 36 plus are still able to put down the phone and try to, you know, connect on another level. But in some cases, really, I mean, when we say let's stop looking at the television, think of the convenience factor. I think they're factoring in on the numbers how many people are actually looking ongoing and again, you know, the Nielsen ratings and everywhere, everywhere else they try to rank and find out how many people watch the Super Bowl. That still is quite popular. But when you're getting videos that are on YouTube Live with Taylor Swift pulling in 143 million viewers, 
You know, there's something to be said that they're watching it at convenience. They're not stuck to a room trying to say, oh, now it's on. Let's go. It's 9 o'clock. We're going to see it. They can do whatever they want, eat pizza, go skateboarding. Uh, We're talking younger generation, even the older generation. You can sit in a car, and you can sit in the back seat of a cab or an Uber or a Lyft and be able to connect instantly with your smartphone. So these numbers are not necessarily because people don't want to sit in a living room, but because it's not convenient for them at that time. And so we can see these numbers changing, they're altering, and it's probably not going to be declining anytime soon. Um, in fact, we could pro- I don't think it will ever disappear. So the times of being able to throw in a movie, grab some popcorn, and watch your show on that big screen TV, they're still applicable. But it's not going to be as often as we see in those numbers overall are going to continue to decline. I was going to ask you, do you think this then is a slow death for the, not the TV industry as far as making the entertainment. People are still watching the entertainment that is produced. But for the hard manufacturers of TV, is this the beginning of a slow death? Or, let me throw the flip side around, is it the reality that as everybody gets a little bit older and it gets harder, as I just described, to see the the small screen, that eventually, even those millennials now who are loving being able to watch everything on a, on a phone or on a tablet or whatever else, eventually are going to want to watch it on a bigger screen? Well, I, you know what? That goes without saying. You know, I'm going to talk about evolution of humans when it comes to technology. Do you remember back in the 90s when the first handheld phone came out? I mean, all you could see was numbers on that dial. <laughs> then all of a sudden they came out with smaller phones, and they went smaller and smaller and smaller. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know what? It got to the point where your thumb was basically your phone, where you could pull a little antenna out, and it was so sort of trendy to have the smallest phone in the entire world to be able to speak. And then all of a sudden, they started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? I'm, gonna, I'm assuming here, I'm not speaking on any facts or otherwise, Scott, but my thought is, you know what? We look at screens a lot. A lot of white light tends to deteriorate your eyesight. Well, you know, it makes it a lot easier when you've got a nice big screen to look at. Now, me personally, I like using the Note 5. Um, however, you know, and that's not because I need a big screen to work with, but I also do a lot of multitasking. I, I, I use a lot of video broadcasting when I'm working with my agency. So, you know, bigger screens are critical when it comes to doing multitasking items. So at that point, to go to your fact is, do we need the bigger screens? The answer is yes, they're getting even bigger. I mean, the Note 8 is going to be coming out at 6.8 inches. There was once a joke of holding an iPad to your head and saying, look at me, I'm on the big phone. That's not too far away. We're actually really going to probably see in the iPhone 11, uh, it's going to be just an iPad. And we can see this based on just our needs to have larger uh, surface area. It's it's actually unheard of to have a monitor less than 21 inches. In fact, if you have a... You're going to need multiple monitors now. Which is a real irony, because at the same time we're saying, I don't want to watch my television on a television. I prefer to watch it on a tablet or on a laptop. We're growing our laptops and our tablets to be the size of television. So ultimately, what we're really doing, it sounds like, is just exchanging one technology for another, thinking that we are changing to something. But really, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're almost doing exactly the same thing. Well, and and think of it this way. If you had a 55-inch, which we like big TVs these days, even those that are building them as they are, a 4K TV that's got an OLED interface that gives you the crispest, easiest, most realistic visuals that the eye, human, can see is is so expensive. Yet I can get an iPad for $399 that gives me that 4K experience. So let's also factor the, the, the matter is convenience is number one. Number two is cost for quality. 
And, and three is the fact that it's mobile and you have the ability to transport. And, and again, making that convenience part of the transport element, it gives you that sense of being able to say, we want the best visual quality at the best price. And, as, and by the way, I would love to get a smart TV. I would love to get a 4K OLED uh, Samsung curved uh, 70 inch, but it's $30,000. Or I can pay $1,000 and get myself a 128 gig 4K iPad that's going to give me the quality that you would expect uh, out of my visual pleasure, if you shall. That, you know, it's a great point. And you also raised something else. We only have a minute or two left here, but. There does seem to be, with technology, a bit of a pendulum effect. And what I mean is, once upon a time, and this was back, I was at the 1992 World Series game at Skydome back then when Devon White made the catch up against the fence and the Blue Jays should have had the yep. triple play because Kelly Gruber tagged Dion Sanders. And I'm sitting in the last row of the 500 level with a one-inch black-and-white Canon handheld TV, and that was the coolest thing ever, that I had a one-inch TV. And that now is ridiculous because, as we say, we get the big 55-inch TVs. But at the same time, in the 80s, I had a gigantic ghetto blaster, and now I listen to my music on an iPod shuffle that's about the size of my thumbnail. We seem to go back and forth and back yeah. and forth. We want everything big. We want everything tiny. We want everything big. We want everything tiny. This <laughs> Is this just another stop on the pendulum? Uh, I believe it is. I think, you know what, it's more human nature than anything. It's sort of like, look how compact it is. Oh, wait, I want it to be bigger than life. So using that example, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's sort of like how relationships go. You know, you never know what you're going to get. Big, small, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter how you turn it. But yes, we as humans, we constantly crave for something small, but we want something big at the same time. I believe, and I'm kind of going off on a rant here on the idea of the vision is no longer going to be the screen, uh, Scott. It's going to be the VR side, the augmented reality. The real future, and you can see this with Facebook, you see it with Oculus, you see it with all of these, Vive, HTC, Samsung, uh, all of them are really pushing for that high-res, mid-size screen that's going to give you that real experience. So you're going to actually step into the actual broadcast and the experience of watching the program and the movies. And they've really been pushing for that. So in, in, I'm going to say uh, neither Tech Talk or you and I will speak one day in the near future, and it's going to be, you know what? Televisions are no longer needed. Now your phone can convert you literally into the television. So are we all going to be wearing headsets then with those things on, like the VR headsets? Yeah, it's going, and not only will it be worn, uh, I mean, that's actually going to be passe. Your example of the one-inch black black and white television in your hand at the baseball game, uh, we're all going to be laughing at how we used to put our phones inside a plastic material, wrap it around our head with a plastic band. And, you know, what we're going to have is literally contact lenses that will allow you to connect directly to your phone. And when you're ready, turn on the VR experience while it's in your pocket, and you'll get that full 4K experience directly watching whatever the program is. That's already here. It's just too uh, advanced for many people to be able to take in. So, yes. The answer is it's already existing. Well, I'm right now already concerned about people driving high on pot. Last thing I need is for someone to have contact lenses watching 4K while they're driving along the street watching a movie. You're going to be hearing a lot about heads. Remember heads-up display? They were very big on Cadillacs, Nissans, telling you, and they're very much popular today. That's going to be the key thing. Google Glass came out with it. They were mocked, uh, and we're going to see that much bigger where you're going to be able to actually manage what you see in your eyes as you're driving using that one as an example, you'll be seeing the speedometer, how fast you're going, where to turn left, where to turn right. And, and again, this stuff exists. This is not something I'm making up. 
It is um, it, to me, it's staggering, uh, and maybe maybe not to anyone else, but to me, that the fa- it, how fast it's moving. Because again, I, to me, it's I would still rather watch anything on a big television. I, I will watch on a tablet. I will watch elsewhere. But my choice. But I apparently now have reached that point, Adam, where I'm at the tipping point of becoming old because I have now crested the hill and am now into the anti-tech market, but everyone, it seems, according to this new survey, says they would much rather watch it on something smaller. Uh, Adam Oldfield, you can hear him here on Bill Kelly with Tech Talk every Friday, um, president of FPM Marketing. Adam, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Oh, and, and I'll put you on hold, and you can tell Luke the answer. Hold on one sec. All right. Uh, that was Adam Oldfield, yes. Um, again, may, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's because I am at a certain age. Maybe it's because I grew up with television. Maybe that's it. Maybe I'm aging myself when I don't need to. Maybe it's just the familiarity of having always watched my entertainment on television. But to me, it is all. it is more comfortable to have a remote control in my hand and have the television in front of me and be able to watch the entertainment that way. And and I'm not, believe me, I'm not so old-fashioned that I'm only able to handle basic cable. And, you know, we've got Netflix. We've got other things. I can deal with PVRs, all that kind of stuff. But it's just, to me, it's a much more relaxing experience to sit on the couch and have the screen not in your hands but up on the wall out of hand where you can just look and you can watch something as opposed to having to hold something all the time or constantly be managing it. I, but what, what are you? Would you rather watch on TV or on an iPad uh, or a, dev- a tablet of some kind? TV. I guess when it comes to like television shows that I watch, I, I generally am watching them on a computer screen, but it's not like a tiny little thing. And that's because I don't really care that deeply. I just want to watch the show. I would not watch it on a phone. I would probably not watch it on a tablet because those are a little too small, but a computer screen's fine for me. With sports, uh, I'm I'm an elitist. It, the bigger the TV, the crisper the HD, but that's, see, I want it. This study, Luke, 52, now they did a, this study was of 26,000 people in 26 countries, so 1,000 people per country, I guess. I don't know if that's how they did it, but it's 26,000 in 26 countries. 52% was the number who would rather watch their entertainment on a TV set. The rest would rather watch it on a computer screen or a tablet. And again, maybe, maybe part of that has something to do with the fact that in some of these countries, maybe the history, maybe historically they haven't had 40-inch TVs or something that you could. Maybe this is, it's always been smaller. I don't know. So maybe that's just a familiarity thing. But again, for me, given a choice, and I'm with you for sports, but for a movie, for a TV show, if I could have something on a 55-inch plasma TV set on my wall compared to a 14-inch laptop screen, I want the TV every time. Yeah, I mean. But I'm now in the minority. Well, I mean, I mean, for me, often the for watching something, the screen wins out the laptop screen wins out because I'm a a multitasker in the sense that when I'm watching my TV shows or a movie, I generally am playing video games at the same time. And so uh, the video games get precedence for the TV because I need a bigger screen to be able to see everything as opposed to a smaller screen. So that's why I go with the TV, uh, the TV and movies on the laptop screen. But yeah, if it was just, if I'm doing just the one thing, it, the TV is going to win every time because why, why would you go with a smaller one when you have the choice of a bigger one? But that's, that's the thing that I don't understand. And yet this survey of 26,000 people says that 
in the last year, half of the they already had was already below 100% who liked TV. And half of the people who preferred TV have dropped away in the past year. It is an accelerating phenomenon that people would rather watch on something other than a television set. And the only thing I can think of, the only answer to this that I can possibly think of is that TVs don't have touchscreen. And that a lot of people like the idea of just being able to touch the screen and turn something on, close it up, whatever else. Because there's, to me... Given all the options, you can have your phone in your hand and you can still be doing your emails while the TV is going on, or you can play a game or you can whatever else. And they don't like that. They want to have it all on the one device. I don't understand that. I just don't get it. Anyway, that's, that's me. Tell me if, I mean, Radley at 900chml.com, what do you think? Would you rather watch something on a TV set or would you rather watch it on your computer? And again, we're talking about entertainment, sports, something like that. Not, not doing work. If you're watching something entertaining, if you're watching a movie, if you're watching a TV show, would you rather watch on a TV or would you rather watch it on a tablet or on some sort of other smaller device? Radley at 900chml.com. I'd love to hear from you on that one here. If I am standing alone on this one, me and all the other apparently antiques. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.